Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and I'm here today with Howard Sherman, author of Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. Howard, welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy. It's nice to be with you. So, Howard, you're somebody who wears a kind of a lot of hats, and I feel like you're known for different things among different groups of people. Could you give our listeners a a sense of your biography? Well... I'm not sure what groups of people know what about me, but but my biography really is that I have been an arts manager and administrator for the bulk of my career. I started, uh, I'm skipping some things, but I started as the PR director at Hartford Stage uh, in the 80s. I was general manager of Goodspeed Musicals uh, in the middle of the 90s, uh, managing director at Jiva Theater in Rochester for a couple of years, three years as executive director at the O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut, and then uh, almost a decade at the American Theater Wing. And, and does your uh, interest to, uh, in our town date to your Hartford stage days? I know they've done some productions of, that, of this play, or is it, is it uh, older than that or more recent than that? It's a complex question the way you phrased it because I I owned I'm certain that I owned a copy of Our Town when I was in high school. I have no memory of having read it, but I still have this paperback. I used to buy used paperbacks in in used bookstores around the Yale University campus. So I've got this paperback that the price of which was like ninety five cents when it was new, and then I. I think the first time I saw it was a production at the Long Wharf in 1988. It was the official 50th anniversary production of the play, as designated by Thornton Wilder's sister, Isabel. And um, But I didn't really connect to the play until I saw David Cromer's production in 2009 or 2010. And in fact, I was really... The first time I saw it, I admired it enormously, but it was the second time that I saw it that I just was completely emotionally devastated. And then a couple of years after that, I saw a production that a friend of mine directed at uh, Sing Sing Correctional Facility mm. and was was equally devastated uh, emotionally, despite it being an amateur cast. And I just started to find more meaning in the play and kept looking at where it was getting done. So when I was approached by a commissioning editor at Methuen to ask if I had any ideas for a book, in in the moment he asked me that question, my mind was blank, but I just sort of drifted to saying, hmm, what about Our Town? And I liked Our Town. I mean, I wouldn't have said that Our Town was one of my favorite plays when I started this, but I knew it was a play that was done a lot so that would would make it appealing as as a book and i just thought it would be interesting to look at it in all honesty i 
when I had the idea, I was very excited for about five minutes. And then I said, oh my God, there's probably so many books about our town. And so I started Googling and looking around even on Amazon as an alternative to Google in this case. And I wasn't finding anything. So I actually called the Wilder family office and said, am I wrong? Are, are there not books about our town? And I was told I wasn't wrong. I did find one book that was a collection of academic essays about our town, but there wasn't a single author through book about it. So I thought I hit on a good idea. And, and uh, the commissioning editor, Dom O'Hanlon at Methwin, agreed. I mean, he told me the morning I pitched it to him verbally that he was pretty sure they'd want this book. And I had to go through a, a process of putting together a proposal and they had to have it reviewed by committees, but it all came together. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is you do devote sort of, I think, about 50 pages to kind of the history of our town and how it came to be and the various different iterations of it in the kind of 30s and 40s. It premiered in 1938. But the, the main focus of your book is on contemporary productions of our town and how they deal with different aspects of the play and kind of how it plays in different audiences. And I feel like this play is one, I, I'm quite familiar with this play, and it's one that I feel like is a totally different play every time I encounter it. I think the first time I saw it, when I was in middle school, I saw a production of it at Tacoma School of the Arts, and I thought it was amazing. I thought it was so great and moving, even at that age. And then I read it in high school, and I thought it was sort of okay. And then I read it in grad school, and again, thought it was great. (laughs) So it really is a play that kind of reinvents itself every time you see it, or even every time you read it. I think maybe even more than most plays. Do you get that sense? Well... I'm not convinced that the play reinvents itself. I think you're reinvented every time you see it. I think it's a play that affects everyone differently, even though it always has the same message. And I think it depends on what is happening in your life, what has happened in your life that continually changes your perspective on this deceptively simple story. So who you were in middle school is not who you were in high school, and Mm -hmm. so on. And this is a play that's often seen as a sort of hokey, old-fashioned play. And and something I realized, I reread the play in preparation for this interview, and something I realized that I didn't really realize at the time is that it's not set in the period in which it premiered. It's set sort of 30 years before 1938. So it was always sort of an... uh, a nostalgic play in a way. But but why do you think that this vision of it as being this kind of, you know, old chestnut, maybe a little boring, why, why is that wrong? Or why is that only a partially true thing to say? I think people's memory of the play is very much about the scenes in Grover's Corners in mm-hmm. Acts 1 and 2. I think people forget the content of Act 3, because for many people, it can be an emotionally difficult thing to experience Act 3. And people also seem to forget about the framing device, which in its day would have been considered avant-garde. Now we would simply call it meta-theatrical. But this is a play where someone walks out on stage 
and says, the name of this play is Our Town. It's produced by, it says the name of where it's being done or who produced it. In it, you will see and introduces the actors. This isn't a play that ever allows you, while you're experiencing it, to forget that you're watching a play because there's this guy who keeps telling you stuff, keeps pointing things out. And what's so interesting is we never really know who that is. The script Mm -hmm. says, and your program would say, that person's called the stage manager. But in point of fact, that person is never referred to by name and for the majority of the play never interacts with the other characters, except when the stage manager steps into other characters. If he does sort of introduce the a professor at the local college and a couple, a couple other things like that, right? To have them tell information to the audience that are, uh, pertain to their special knowledge, right? Absolutely. And, and in a, a production where if suddenly somebody thinks it's actually a local professor who's come out, to talk so much the better because mm-hmm. it's constantly breaking the frame. And I don't mean simply the proscenium, but it is constantly causing you to look at it in a different way or to point out things. And in some cases, the, the stage manager is pointing out things that you probably don't realize in the moment what they mean. And I think I can say I've benefited enormously from having spent the amount of time that I did with Our Town and more importantly, from having had over 100 people who've been involved in productions of the play tell me their experience and what they saw in the play. I, I say now that you know, if somebody asks me about the play, what I'm presenting them with is some kind of synthesis of all of these voices and what of theirs I agree with and what of theirs I don't necessarily agree with, as well as simply thoughts that I've come to on my own. But I do believe this play changes because it is a play that is directed. I know this sounds weird because, of course, all plays are directed at the audience, but I think this play is somewhat uniquely directed at each individual audience member. It's Mm -hmm. not about necessarily what happens to the characters. It's how you project yourself into this very simple framework of the play and the experiences happening within it. It's also a play that in an almost abstract sense is about the major milestones of life. It's about first love, then it's about marriage, and then it's about death. I mean, it's, it is really like, it is pretty impossible for anybody to not relate to this play. It's pretty pared back in terms of, of what it tells you. Yes, there are some details of the time periods in which it takes place, the, the turn of the 20th century, but it's not about that per se. And I think going back to what you were saying about people's memory of it or how people define it, Each time the play is done, there is the opportunity to reframe the context in which it's seen, remembering, as you rightly point out, that while it premiered in 1938, the Grover's Corners scenes 
were already set in the past, not the far distant past. It was it was about 30 years earlier. So plenty of theater goers, adult theater goers, would remember those days, whether they were children or whether they were already middle-aged. So the question now is, when you do the play, when is everything happening? Mm. Because it wasn't meant in its original production to be a look back at the golden days. It was a look back 30 years. Yes, it was a bit of a memory, but it wasn't, it wasn't about history. And so now when the play is done, if you are looking back, yes, now we're looking back a century. And is that its original intention? So these are choices and the framework is such that without in any way violating or being unfaithful or changing the text, the context can influence how you see it and how you respond to it. And that was was absolutely apparent as, as I saw some of these productions and as I spoke to people from these productions, that the context was was essential to each of these these iterations. Did some of the productions that you saw and the and that you talked to people about set the play later than it's kind of uh, originally set in the early 20th century? Yes, uh, I'm not sure that they set it somewhere specifically, but they were more unspecific than mm-hmm. perhaps the standard costuming might be. David Cromer's production, which played in six cities over the course of uh, about six years, basically had people in what looked like rehearsal clothes or street clothes. It didn't have them in old, tiny outfits. David's production was so pared back that even the two A-frame ladders that are almost iconic to productions of our town weren't there. He didn't even bother with the ladders. So he stripped it back even further. But when when he came in and wanted to remind the audience not to have their cell phones on, he held up his cell phone. What does it mean when the stage manager is carrying a cell phone? And you've seen it. Where does that place things? And is the stage manager in the same time period as the scenes that he, and I should say, or she, or they, choose to show us. Uh, was it common uh, during the kind of original wave of productions to have the stage manager played by somebody other than a man, or is that is that only a more recent uh, phenomenon? It was not commonplace in the early years of the play, but it has been widely seen since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So... The, the, the age, the gender, the race or ethnicity of the stage manager, their perhaps disability, has all been open. And, and who hosts you, who guides you through this play, again, is part of the context. But because the stage manager has no defining characteristics, has no story of their own, doesn't interact with people except as a neutral presence, they can be played by anyone. 
And Thornton and Wilder actually played the stage manager in productions of Our Town, isn't that right? Wilder did did play the stage manager. He did it for two weeks in the original Broadway production, and he spent uh, the better part of two decades often going out during the summers and playing summer theaters. And he would literally travel from theater to theater where they had different casts, and he would just step into the show because the stage manager is that separate. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, the early years were absolutely the guy in the three-piece suit, often smoking a pipe, but but that particular iconography has been gone for a long time. Or not gone, but has been simply one option. I really misspeak when I say gone. Sure. You can still do it that way. That's a choice. But there's My no favorite- other things. My favorite line in the play, I think, is when Mrs. Webb tells Emily... You're pretty enough for all normal purposes. Do you have a favorite line? I do. It's actually more than a, a single line. And I don't have any conscious way of, of saying why this one hits me so much. Um, but it's at the end of one of the stage manager's monologues. And I'm flipping rapidly through the script because I want to get it right. Mm-hmm. So... People a thousand years from now, this is the way we were in the provinces north of New York at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying and in our living and in our dying. I just find it affecting and beautiful. And as you pointed out, in the way that the play has common events for everyone, that's it. You know, mm-hmm. not everyone marries, of course, though the play in that era suggested they did. But growing up, living and dying, everybody's got that in common. Mm-hmm. I, I got to say, I got chills when you read that, Howard. Well, I'm no actor, but <laughs> you don't necessarily have to be an actor to mm-hmm. even read the stage manager's role. The power of the words and what Wilder wanted said, wanted pointed out to us. There's also a great passage in early in Act Three where he talks about the old stones in the cemetery and the Grover's Corners boys who went off to fight in the Civil War. And because they did it for the United States of America. And then he repeats it the United States of America. And at a time of division, I find it really affecting that even talking about a time when the country was split, these were boys from rural New Hampshire who, as Wilder has the stage manager say, had never seen more than 50 miles beyond it. But they went and fought on the side of the North because of a belief in what this country should be. As I say, the context of this play is so extraordinary. Some of the productions in the book, it's it's fairly obvious. Seeing this show in a maximum security prison immediately affects how you're going to perceive this show. The production that was done by the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester, England, as an immediate response to the arena bombing of an Ariana Grande concert there in uh, May of 2017. 
when you do this show set against events or places like that, you find so much that you might not find in a different production just because, again, of where you are, of what's on your mind. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the things that was clearly on audiences' minds in 1939 was the prospect of world war. I mean, this is one year before uh, the Nazis invade Poland. It's three years before Pearl Harbor. So, uh, and and the references to war, you mentioned the Civil War, but I think there's also a reference to World War One that's kind of quite sardonic in a way, or at least can be read that way. It's kind of suggesting that, you know, this, this, uh, I think that's the one where he says all that education for nothing about the, the, the young man who goes and dies fighting in France. How were, how were those lines, do you think, received at that time? And how does the context of the impending world war affect how we think about the play? Well, it's hard to say. And I think you'd need a historian or a dramaturg or somebody who's more steeped in in literary analysis than I am. Certainly everyone could look back on World War I and know what that meant. But did a New York audience in 1938 fully appreciate what was going on in Europe? Did they fully understand what the rise of the Nazi party in Germany was going to mean? My understanding is a lot of U.S. newspapers didn't pay a lot of attention to it. So so how much an impending war was on Americans' minds in 1938, I don't know. Surely Wilder, however, because he spent much of 1937 in Europe, Switzerland and France in particular, he was probably more aware of it than many Americans were, that in the waning days of the Depression, in the rise of a potential war, maybe not necessarily a world war was anticipated at that point, why did he write a show that was so simple to the point that it doesn't actually have any conflict in it? (laughs) He was after something. Mm-hmm. And and he was more at core values than, as certainly other playwrights were, maybe not right then, but but fairly shortly thereafter, were, were speaking directly to what was going on in what was first the European situation and then became the U.S. situation. Mm-hmm. This play is just before, I think, most people understood it, but I'm pretty sure Thornton Wilder knew what was happening. Because his, and he had very extensive connections among European artists and intellectuals. I mean, I'm sort of surprised reading your book, seeing some of the very avant-garde figures that he kind of uh, was in contact with, given the reputation of this play. Well, he, I mean, there's an entire book just of the correspondence of Thornton Wilder and Gertrude Stein. And for people who want to say that the play is old-fashioned, 
they understand that Gertrude Stein was always progressive and, and her work remains very much an emblem of a, a thread in arts and letters that was adventurous, mm-hmm. that she was close to the man who wrote this play, which, as I said, in its day really was avant-garde. Is, is an indication that if you only look at the surface of our town, if you only see the details of Grover's Corners, then you're probably missing the play. And clearly Wilder wanted you to look beyond the details because he didn't want a set and he wanted a lot of things mined. So you weren't caught up in being distracted by the specifics. Is Shakespeare an influence there? I mean, Shakespeare didn't use a lot of set pieces, in, in the, at least in the original productions. Well, I couldn't say. I think in, in Shakespeare's day, it was simply a convention of theater. I don't think it was unique mm-hmm. to Shakespeare that you didn't have elaborate sets, that you had to work with relatively simple props because shows were being done in rep. They had to get on and off. Theater troops would travel, so on and so forth. So I will say, you know, I say in the book, Wilder was very much an intellectual. He was steeped in the classics. He was he was a, a citizen of the world. He'd spent some of his high school years at an American school in China. Um, so he was someone who who absorbed a great deal. He was he was a reader of the classics. He was a translator of the classics. So his influences are vast. And again, I think you'd have to look to a biographer mm-hmm. or to to his own writings to, to define what his influences were. But he drew on a whole bunch of different conventions. In fact, you mentioned Shakespeare, but, but Japanese drama doesn't have much in the way of scenery uh, in it. And he acknowledged both Greek influence and Asian influence in his writing. So it goes earlier than Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, what were some of the more notable productions that you saw and, and how did they handle the play differently? What are some of the kind of frequent uh, points of divergence among the productions that you look at? Well, first I want to say, you know, I didn't set out with this book to say these are the best productions or these Mm -hmm. are the most prominent productions. I ended up looking for productions that either sort of had to be included, such as the last Broadway production, David Cromer's production, or productions which I believed had interesting aspects to them above and beyond the specifics of the play. So a two-night production done by the staff of an emergency intake psychiatric hospital is given the same weight in the book as the Westport Country Playhouse production with Paul Newman that went to Broadway. In terms of divergence, I'd have to think a little bit about that because they all go to the same place. Wilder has a very specific message he wants to impart. It's not hidden. But in the English productions uh, that are included in the book, 
which includes David Cromer's final uh, go at the play uh, when he did it at the Almeida. It's interesting that the production in Regent's Park in 2019, the stage manager began with her own accent. And then once she, in this case, it was a she, introduced, uh, started speaking about Grover's Corners, she lapsed into a general American accent and everybody else performed in an American accent. So what is it to have a stage manager who is British and then everybody else who was British performing as Americans? In contrast to the Royal Exchange production and David Cromer's production, where there was no attempt to change an accent and regional accents are a big thing in England. And so you had whatever, wherever people came from, whatever their accent was, you heard it. And so that's, that's interesting to me and how that lands when you do the play outside of America. Do you choose to mimic Americans or do you make the play in its, if you emphasize its universality, you just let the actors be themselves. There's a production going up. It actually opens tomorrow night as we're speaking in, uh, in Brisbane, Australia, Queensland theater there. And I don't know what they're doing about their accents. I, mm-hmm. I haven't discovered that yet. But the stage manager is played by an indigenous Australian. And that, again, will influence the context of how this play is seen there. If they use American accents, if they keep their Australian accents, all of that's going to affect it. So beyond that, in terms of divergence, I think it's not everybody keeps to the the dictum of of no curtain no scenery some productions have some degree of scenery how they choose to do that varies but it's not an absolute that it's always 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 a bare stage and what does a bare stage mean miami new drama production was a bare stage but they had built a floor for it and the floor was wood planking. It wasn't a plain stage deck. So what does that mean? How does that influence things? And of course the costume choices diverge because there are these productions that want to make it as contemporary as possible without being trendy. So whether it looks like street clothes or rehearsal clothes or whether people go into full turn-of-the-century American dress can affect things. In the case of the production at Sing Sing, they were allowed to use costumes, and many of the men made their own choices. The stage manager there wore uh, a tuxedo with that had tails, and gosh, I'm not remembering at this moment, it was either beige or green. But I, I think of the green because in Act 3 which takes place in the cemetery, there were men who came on who had not been in the play previously, were there only for that act, and they wore their prison greens. Mm. There was no attempt to costume them. They went up 
and they brought their chairs and they put their chairs down and they were in the cemetery and those men who came on never spoke and never moved, but they became part of the play and thinking about what that said. So I think there's all kinds of variants based on budget, based on concept, uh, based on the director's interpretation of the play. It's also true in sound, whether, whether some productions have chosen to add more music than the play dictates. You can decide if that's a good choice or a bad choice. Wilder himself said, my play swears at music in denying Aaron Copeland the opportunity to turn it into an opera. So are you, mm. nowadays, do you feel you're cluttering up the play with music or do we accept music as a compliment? Because in the film, which Aaron Copeland scored, the people, people are, think the music is, is one of the best elements of that film. So <laughs> I think every time it's done, it's redone. I think it's, every time it's done, it's done the way people think it was done in 1938 is probably not the best way to go. Mm-hmm. One of the things about the play that I think is sort of interesting is that while it is very universal in its themes, in its specificity, it is quite limited and provincial. And even, you know, even Polish town is kind of not quite even in the uh, in in the frame of the play. It's it's very waspy. These are people who have lived in this town for generations. I'm aware that, you know, even me as an Irish American, I'm probably not quite the, the demographic that Thornton Wilder is writing about. How have contemporary productions dealt with that aspect of the play? I mean, it's, you know, something like 86% Republican and, you know, similar percent Protestant. And how, how do plays deal with that? Do they kind of, you know, lean into the fact that they're not going to go in that direction or, or, or how do they navigate that? Well, it's funny. You mentioned Shakespeare earlier, and this is where I want to bring Shakespeare back. When we look at how Shakespeare is produced now, There are certainly specifics in some of Shakespeare's plays, particularly the history plays, but the plays are you, people focus on what about the plays still speaks to us today, not what it would have been for an audience uh, in the year 1600, give or take 20 years on either side. Um, So yes, the, the play, at the time it was written, was a white playwright. Broadway was an exceedingly white audience. That part of New Hampshire was not necessarily diverse. But let's look a little closer. There is talk about another part of Grover's Corners and how people relate to that other part of Grover's Corners, even though it's unseen, is a question. We hear about immigrants. We have one character in the play who is clearly an other, and I'm speaking of Simon Stimson, the alcoholic Mm -hmm. uh, choir master. What is his story? Why is he so apart from this community? Why can he not connect with this community? I think that Wilder, while portraying the the core white Protestant community wants to show us more. And that while the people in the town may be a little unaware of what they're doing, 
Wilder is not unaware and the stage manager is not unaware. And to a degree, the, there's a bit of cluelessness by Professor Willard when he steps in. There is there's a brief mention when talking about the, the ethnic makeup of our town where there is a reference to early Amerindian stock, all gone now. It's a very mm. brief mention. But suddenly it's looking at what happened to Native Americans as these white settlers came in. They're all gone. Well, they didn't just pick up and decide to move. They were driven away mm-hmm. or they died out because of European illnesses that were brought. There are constant touches like that. One of the people, one of the things that people bring up a lot in again, when they're when they're thinking about the sort of nostalgic qualities that they want to ascribe to the play, they say it's it's the town that everybody wants it to be, where nothing ever changes. And in fact, Wilder's very clear about strewing clues to the fact that change is happening in Grover's Corners. Again, the technology may be all old-fashioned to us, but we're told in the first act, everybody's traveling by horse. Then Mm -hmm. we learn that suddenly in act two, a lot more people coming into town in cars. Used to be a dog could sleep all day in the middle of Main Street. Even something as obscure as the phylo system of raising chickens, which is a real thing, but I don't think anybody knew what it was. Who needs a newfangled way to raise an animal that's been around for centuries, probably? Mm-hmm. There is a march of time and change in Grover's Corners. And there is also a desire on the part of women to be more than the strictures of the time allowed them to be. And Wilder doesn't shy away from from portraying that. He also, again, makes clear that there is a desire to engage with the wider world because we have Mrs. Gibbs saying she always wanted to see Paris. She hoped her husband would take her to Paris and that just once she'd like to go somewhere where they don't speak English and they don't even want to. (laughs) She's a very funny character, Mrs. Gibbs. She is. a lot of good lines. I think both of the moms can can Mm -hmm. be seen as funny, but in talking with the women who've played those parts, they're more aware of the dynamic than we might be. Which of those marriages is the happier one? Which of those marriages are the, are the spouses more equal than another? Where are ideas being, being shot down? I have to remember when we look at Emily, Emily early on, Emily declares to her mother, I want to make speeches all my life. She has dreams of being a figure. And, of course, we learn that that doesn't happen, not only because of of her ultimate fate, but when she makes the choice to be with George and to become a farmer's wife, what does that do to her dreams? Mm -hmm. I think the play has an awful lot going on. So so to, to the broader point, 
having seen the play with genders changed, race and ethnicity, both colorblind and color conscious, I I think it's not stuck in the detail of their 85% Protestant, 86% Republican, or maybe I have that backwards. But um, <laughs> we also have to remember, what was the Republican Party? What were their uh, beliefs in the time yeah. when, when the play is set? It's very different from the Republican Party of today. And I'm not judging in any way, but I do find when I see the play done that that's become a bit of a laugh line. And I don't believe it was ever meant to be. It was simply a statement Mm -hmm. of fact of who these people were. And and the Republican Party in the early 1900s was still very much the party of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And, And we need to understand what that means. So, yes, there will always be details. But if you take, say, the Miami New Drama production where the Gibbs, the mother, was of Haitian descent, spoke Creole, and the play was translated so that some of her lines were in Creole, and her children understood Creole, but her husband barely spoke it. Mm -hmm. What does that say? Their next-door neighbors, the Webbs, were a Latinx family and spoke only Spanish at home, like many Latinx families do now. So there are ways to reframe the play, to reframe people's perceptions of the play without changing anything else. And so, as I was saying earlier, when you are guided through the play by a white woman, by an English woman, by a black man, by um, an incarcerated man, by... A, Middle East, a man of Middle Eastern heritage, as was the case in the Royal Exchange. All of that allows the play to transform without ever changing what it means. But I think it does open people up to perceiving it more than, perceiving more in it than they might if it was, quote unquote, a completely traditional production. And, and is part of the reason why this has been able to happen that is that the Wilder estate has been more uh, forgiving or more more um, accommodating of of kind of alternative ways of staging or casting or even translating the play than than uh, certain other playwrights estates that I could name. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to really give credit to Tap and Wilder because he, while always wanting people to stay true. To the words, not changing the words unless specific permission is granted, uh, as was the case in the translations for Miami New Drama or for Deaf West, when, when, of course, it was simultaneously done in English and American Sign Language. But he, he has been very open to allowing people to look at this play in different ways. And Many of us who've had the experience of wanting to license plays that are now controlled by estates because the author is gone often find those estates mired in wanting it done exactly the way it was always done. And and Tappan, I think, has been an extraordinary steward 
of his uncle's legacy because he will fight fiercely to make sure it's not being changed, but he acknowledges that there are other ways to get at this material than there might have been while his uncle was alive. Seems like the way to go. If anybody uh, listening manages a playwright's estate, <laughs> take take note. This is how you can help the, the deceased playwright stay in the canon. Well, I think it also depends on whether an estate has the artistic understanding of the work. You have to remember mm-hmm. that not every estate is going to be managed by someone a, who actually knew the relative who wrote the original work, and they aren't necessarily people in the theater or in the arts. Tappan has a real understanding of this material. I mean, he is, you know, as we're talking, we're talking a lot about the play. If you want to know more about the play, you need to talk to Tappan Wilder. As I say, what I am is a synthesis of, of a director's process, an actor's process, a designer's process. Who, who taught me to see things in the play that, even though I'd seen it a number of times, I'd never noticed and I'd read it. I just kept constantly having these conversations where I would go, oh, wow, because someone pointed something out to me that, that I'd never quite seen. And because the play, its many, many hints are often very, very subtle. Well, Howard Sherman, thanks so much for taking the time to be on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about Another's Day, Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. This has been such a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. 